Hey there, security peeps. It's October, and man, uh, we missed a podcast in September. I really, really tried hard on that, but uh, the wheels just fell off. So I got really busy, and I uh, apologize for that. We'll try to make it up with an in-between-isode uh, coming up soon. So keep your eyes out on that. Now, this episode, very, very different uh, from some of the other episodes in the past. Uh, this time, many of you asked on Twitter for me to take the hot seat and uh, really do sort of an, an in-depth interview with me on what my thoughts and history are with InfoSec and kind of what I think uh, is coming up over the horizon. So uh, Adam J. Luck, he gathered some questions over Twitter and uh, compiled some of that stuff together, and lo and behold... Uh, we, put, we added a few that uh, he really wanted to cover, and uh, we put together this program. So I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, this is, it's about uh, almost 50 minutes long, and uh, we spend a lot of time uh, really talking through my history, uh, my advice for folks that are uh, coming up and how that's changed, some of the big uh, problems in information security and where I think things are going, and um, what are some of the game changers that I think are coming up? So I hope you stay tuned for that. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Microsoft Inc. That's M-I-C-R-O-S-O-L-V-E-D.com on the internet. And uh, you can find us there on the World Wide Web. We do a lot of penetration testing, application security. And now we're starting to apply a lot of uh, machine learning and analytics to information security problems. We're doing a lot of... Uh, in-depth, very customized threat intelligence, uh, passive assessments, brand-focused kind of uh, uh, reputational impacts. We're doing a lot of uh, um, monitoring of folks that are in highly regulated environments or, or where online reputation really matters. And uh, we're doing a lot of large-scale uh, analytics uh, to various data sets to help do asset discovery and, and network mapping, application mapping, data flow mapping uh, using the analytics engine called TigerTracks. So check that out, if you will, on microsolved.com. You can learn more about it there. As always, you can uh, learn more about what we're doing by just uh, talking with us on Twitter. I'm at L-B-H-U-S-T-O-N. That's L-B Houston. And uh, Adam J. Luck is at Adam J. L-U-C-K, Luck, uh, Adam J. Luck. You can find him. You can also follow at Microsolved on Twitter. We're uh, out there, plus the stateofsecurity.com podcast uh, is always around, and our blog at stateofsecurity.com. All right, enough advertising. Without further ado, I'm going to move right into this interview. I hope you enjoy it. At the end, uh, stay tuned. We've got a little bit more information Please, if you have any questions or you've got feedback or you want to just kind of talk through some of the things in this podcast, reach out on Twitter. I look forward to talking to you as always. And until next time, stay safe out there. Hey there, security ninjas. It's Brent Houston again. And, uh, Today, I am joined again by the fabulous Adam J. Luck. That's at Adam J. Luck on Twitter. But there's a little twist in store, a little twist. This time, 
Adam's going to be asking the questions. Everybody wrote in on Twitter and such and asked me to take the hot seat. So uh, I've agreed. And um, I'm going to turn things over to Adam. You know, how kind of start out, Adam. Um, folks came in and they wrote in with some questions and uh, sent that stuff that I delivered to you. Um, but I'll let you kind of do the intro and and turn things over. You have control. There we go. You know, I still I think it'd be helpful if from the beginning you just go over your history within InfoSec and some of the products you've done, the tools you've made, places you've worked, and things like that, just so people can have a background of who you are as a person before we get into some of the other questions. Oh, man, I'm old and boring. So uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, I came up at the right time, so if you if you kind of are into Malcolm Gladwell and have read uh, Outliers kind of thing, there was a space around that time for uh, information security folks. And so in the late 80s, you could uh, come from a basic technology background. There were bulletin board systems that you could dial up and you could start to learn about dial-up hacking and different forms of exploitation. and you could uh, you know, get on the early days of information services, things like CompuServe and Prodigy, and eventually, yeah, even that thing that they'd send you the CDs, what was that, AOL, you <laughs> right. remember that, right. yeah. So uh, in those days, hacking and, and um, uh, sort of that uh, cyber, what we call cyber security kind of stuff today, um, it was really just hacking and subversion and, and sort of playing with technology. And so in the in the early 80s, um, I happened to live in a household where my, my mother was in the computer business. She worked for a large data center at that time and we had a dial-up terminal in the house. Um, and in this, this days, it was literally like you've seen war games, you know, you pick the phone up, you put it on the little cradle and uh, we didn't even have a screen, it, it had, fax paper like you would think of as fax paper or a big roll of paper that was thermal hmm. and it would it would print uh onto the paper what was coming from the other side and then you would type and you would see what you typed and then it would print what was coming and so it was literally a roll of paper that you were printing all this on and set the screen and then eventually we got a screen and that stuff well uh I, I remember how I kind of got started. I was a young kid, and my mom introduced me to playing adventure on this mainframe. And so we went through a lot of that thermal paper, uh, you know, go left, uh, pick up sword, swing sword, uh, that kind of stuff. And so I got real familiar with technology, real familiar with playing with it. And then as I grew older, uh, finally we ended up getting things like, you know, a VIC-20, um, I think somebody at one point gave us a Commodore 64. We had a hard drive and a modem for that. And we started exploring bulletin board systems and, and uh, hanging out online. And um, then when I, uh, when I moved here to Ohio to go to school, uh, to go to college, uh, I got a job in a computer company that did EDI. And uh, that was the old Sterling Software Company. And uh, so I kind of got involved in technology that way. I stayed there about five and a half years while I uh, went through college. And all during that time, my roommates and I and, and all of our friends, we were kind of doing the bulletin board, early internet hacking kind of stuff. 
And uh, by about the beginning of the 90s, uh, I got the idea from a, a lovely lady named Lisa Bain that uh, I should should try to make a career out of that, try to do a business out of it. And so uh, uh, I did. And uh, that's kind of how I got started and ended up started starting uh, Microsoft uh, MSI in uh 1992 and we've been at this now what almost uh 24 years mm-hmm. um during that time uh you kind of asked about products uh early on in the early days i wrote some dial-up uh hacking tools and scripts uh that were around a couple of them that you might have heard of if you were old old school you might have heard of juggernaut um you might have heard of uh, a couple of detection tools that we did like honey dial and uh, I think there was another tool uh, called PassSys that was like a uh, log file monitoring, log watching tool. Uh, still around. That, that I still get occasionally somebody will ping me and say, hey, uh, you know, we're, we're still running this log monitoring tool in, in some phone switch somewhere. Uh, and then, of course, you know, as, as time went on, we built uh, different tools through MSI. So things like the distributed assessment platform, uh, we eventually, of course, built HoneyPoint, TigerTracks, uh, to today where, where we have a myriad of tools and, and applications that we've built taking the market. So I know that's a long-winded mm-hmm. uh, way to say I, I'm old and crusty <laughs> at this security thing, been at it a while. Now, you've told me from your earlier days within information security that at one point you thought it was possible the problem would be solved. So now I kind of want to ask you, where you see the next three to five years of information security going, and if you think the problem will ever be solved. I hear a lot of people stating with the cloud and consolidation that maybe it'll be less of an issue, and I just want to see where you think everything's going to shift at some point. Boy, uh, that's a tough question. When I was, when I was a young man, uh, and, I, and I first got into this career, uh, I really thought that the career would be a 10, 15 year path. And, and that's how full of hubris I was uh, at that time. I, I really thought 10 or 15 years after we got started, we would have solved the problem and, and information security in general would have been a, an afterthought. It would have been a, just another Lego that you snap into uh, your life or into solutions and no more uh, you know, no more real thought to it than the way people turn on a light switch and, and the lights come on. Um, but uh, somewhere around my 40th birthday, there are some there's some more stories we can maybe dig into a little bit down the road. But um, I really was trying to figure out, like like a lot of people, what was going on in your in your life. And uh, as I looked back, I started identifying the fact that really not much had changed since I started my career. Um, there were more attacks. They were more sophisticated. There were more tools. There was more defenses, but attacks were getting worse. There was more leakage on and on and on. And uh, it, it, it was a hard thing for me to swallow and for me to, to step back and learn the humility that we didn't solve the problem and in some ways we made the problem worse and i think it was at that time that i decided to reach out to a good friend of mine named kent king who um, has always been sort of a mentor of mine and uh he's an older gentleman older than me 
and uh, we had a very frank discussion about that, and, and he got me to understand that crime has always been around, and that the, the, the information security threats and, and, and the crime that takes place inside of digital networks and, and uh, electronic systems is really just a new facet of crime that's always existed. And that it was really the hubris of, of youth that made me think that we could really solve it. So it took me a bit. It, t it took me a, about nine months to really get my head around that. And, and I will tell you that that was one of the hardest parts of my career. I really thought for a while about just packing it up and, um, and calling it because I didn't feel like I could really uh, change the world in a substantial way. But it was about that time as well that, that, that Kent started to mentor me and, and, and help me understand that while you might not be able to solve the problem, if I looked back at all the contributions I had made, the products I had brought to market, the people I had mentored, the customers that I had saved from damage, the people I had helped respond to attacks, the, the people who were suffering that I had tried to help. If you looked across that, instead of solving the problem, you could measure and identify the good that you had done in your life. And it was that very thing, that, that change that drove me to continue and that uh, allowed me to see that it, it was much more uh, than just solving the problem of crime. Um, and about that time, I kind of made the decision that I had spent the beginning of my career really focused on breaking stuff. I had, I had been a, a hacker. Uh, I, I discovered vulnerabilities. I uh, penetrated systems, and I was pretty, pretty good at that. Um, but that I, I really wanted to spend the swan song of my career, the rest of my career, uh, helping people, mentoring the next generation of folks who are going to do that and take that to the next level and building products and solutions to help people who are in uh, different circumstances. And so that's how I kind of I kind of switched on. And um, today, that's what gets me out of bed every day. Um, and it's why mentoring is so important at MSI. It's why uh, mentoring is such a big part of what I do with the community. Um, and, and, and that, I think, is, is the thing that drives me forward. That actually brings up my next question. Um, a lot of people want to make the transition into IT security from any field that they're in with you know, a lot of news stories happening surrounding the field is becoming more and more popular of a career choice. What advice would you give to somebody that wants to transition into information security, and how would you recommend they do it? Wow. Uh, so again, this is a point where my mind has really changed. So in the beginning days, uh, maybe 10 years ago, I wrote an article that's still on the blog. You can find it out there. It's called, So You Want to Be an InfoSec. And in that article, I talk about uh, building a lab and picking one area of information security that you want to be really, really good at 
and uh, developing those skills really deep and focusing in on one area of InfoSec. Um, and that used to be the way that I, I, I think you could get in to the business and you could make it different. Now, looking at, at where we are today and, and looking at the way attacks have changed and, and the way that technology has become ubiquitous in our lives, um, I think my view on that has changed. And I would say to someone who's getting in uh, to this business or who wants to get in and make a difference in information security in the next decade, you really have to step back and develop general skills. Um, because to really understand information security and the ebb and flow of attacks and, and the way that crime works, you, you have to understand technology, yes. You have to understand mobile and networks and applications because it's not one thing anymore. It's all one thing. It's not separate things anymore. But you also have to step back and understand economics. You have to understand why money flows the way it does and why attackers are able to convert data to money and how. And you have to understand the economic decision making that they use, how money drives people to make different decisions, how it moves markets. You have to understand sociology, how people function in groups. You have to understand psychology enough to know what motivates people to make different choices. So you have to you have to be a generalist in a lot of those areas now in order to come in and have a significant impact. The market's still there for coming in and designing some nuanced product or developing some totally disruptive process um, or buildings that you know the next uh, the next intrusion detection platform or whatever. Um, the market's still there for that, but the noise of the market space and the rapid adaption of attackers to new tools and techniques makes the, the window for that opportunity so much smaller that uh, the impact becomes quite shortened. And so in my opinion, I think um, generalists are gonna fare better and generalists who study and focus on attacker behavior and translate that into relevant business behavior uh, are going to do well in the next you know, five to ten years in this space. Okay, I think that's very great advice for somebody wanting to enter into the field and transition to being a security professional. Man, um, I wish, I'll tell you, I, I wish that weren't true. I wish it were easy to go to uh, a community college or get a four-year degree, you know, or, or and learn, like, oh man, I'm going to learn IP, right? And I'm going to be a packet head and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to be able to take that knowledge and like change the security world with it. Um, but the sad truth of that is those days are gone. It's just, and I think this would be a great topic down the line, but it's just so hard for people to teach security or IT in general because it changes so rapidly. For you to have a curriculum and a program established, by the time you're done and you're set, it, it's changing. So it's hard for them to pick up these skills in school. And they're going to learn more working the help desk about security in a year than I think they would in four years of undergrad. It, it, it's true. And in my experience, mentorship and engagement 
are the two big pieces. If somebody is willing to get into a mentor relationship and they're willing to engage with their mentor and that mentor is able to transfer knowledge to them that's real and actualized and actionable, those are the people that are going to change the curve. Now, not to say that there won't always, there's always going to be a market, or at least in the foreseeable future, always is a long time with, with things like artificial intelligence and machine learning coming. But for the foreseeable future, there will be a market for people to run tools, for people to monitor tools, for, for folks to look at the outputs and, and make decisions um, and, and provide actionable elements. The sort of security manager, security monitoring person. Those those positions are going to be there, and they're going to they're going to grow in demand. But I don't see those as folks that are changing the curve or or going to really uh, make substantial impacts on a global scale of uh, you know information security. Out of everything that you've accomplished throughout your career, if you could pick one thing that you're most proud of. What do you think it would be? Oh, man, without a doubt, the thing that I am most proud of is the people that I've mentored. Um, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shame some people here, not shame them, but uh, name them. And, and sometimes uh, I, they don't, they get a little embarrassed that I'm so proud of them. Um, but people like Alex Hutton and Bill Stoner, Dan Eckstein, uh, Troy Venning, uh, Richard Orris. Uh, these are all people who came up through the program uh, and who I worked with and, and helped do skills development and help them focus. And some folks who, who came up maybe who didn't get named, uh, please don't think that you're slighted. Uh, it was just off the top of my head and I'm highly over-caffeinated. Uh, <laughs> But uh, there were a lot of folks that came up through the program, and, and over the years, I've worked with a number of them. Some of them went on to be uh, great security people. Some went on to be great risk people. Some went on to get completely out of IT, but they're entirely happy in their lives, and that ultimately is what I'm the proudest of. That's yeah. definitely great to hear. Now, to kind of turn the tables, you know, you definitely seem to try to live without regrets, but if you had one thing that you could change in your career or one failure that you really regret, what would it be? Boy, uh, there are a few of those. Um, there was a, a, a couple of times where uh, I had to make really hard choices for people uh, that I was mentoring where things just weren't working out for whatever reason. And in the short term, uh, I had to make some decisions that really hurt them in the short term, but in the long term was the right thing. And that's a tough choice. That's a tough thing. And, and um, watching, watching those people uh, come to terms with that and how it changed their life in the end, I'm very fortunate that uh, I'd say about 90% of those tough decisions worked out. Uh, a few didn't, and uh, that's that's uh, that's probably one of my biggest regrets. Another of my regrets 
in, in sort of my career and personal life is I had a collaborator uh, and good friend uh, named Michael Holhorst, and I worked with him. Uh, he was the impetus and, and one of the, the reasons why I built Honey Point uh, was that we used to have these nonsense conversations about what, wouldn't it be great if we knew this and this and this, and, and this was a way to, to get that data to fuel those conversations, and I built Honey Point, and if you read the manual, you know, the, the product is dedicated to him. Um, we worked together all those years, uh, you know, really deep friendship, really deep uh, relationships, and all the, the time, the last couple of years, he was really struggling with pancreatic cancer, and I didn't know it, and um, I guess my big regret there is that I was so caught up in uh, developing technologies and so caught up in those conversations and friendship that, that I didn't realize how short those days really were. And um, so my big regret there is that I didn't spend more time um, enjoying and focus on those friendship days because it turned out they were too short indeed. So, I think since I joined MSI, some of the more helpful advice you've given me has been about setting certain routines in your day. And I was surprised how many of those routines don't always involve information security or your day-to-day -day job. Certain things like making <laughs> sure you reach out to an old friend and things like that. And I think it'd be helpful for everybody listening if you talked about some of the routines that help you in running the businesses that you do. And just your life in general, how you're able to accomplish all that. So I, I, I ripped this kind of off from Tim Ferriss uh, just recently, but uh, I would say that routine, that ritual all starts with winning the morning. Um, and so uh, even before there, Tim Ferriss in his podcast, and there's been a lot of uh, uh, noise in the productivity environment and, and communities that are focused on life hacking and that, that your day should start with uh, making your bed. Well, I always did that not because of uh, productivity, but because that's what my mama taught me. Um, and so my day always started with making the bed. And it seems so simple. It seems so stupid that making the bed would be a part of your daily ritual. But it is true that it's sort of a cleansing moment. So for me, it separates uh, getting up in the morning and starting the day, right? So it's a dividing line. It's now time. It's serious. I'm up and I got to move. So making the bed starts everything off. Uh, usually I have coffee with my wife. Uh, we have a daily gratitude ritual that we do while we're having coffee. So we talk about uh, each day what is the single thing that we are uh, most thankful for that day. Uh, what are the the areas in our life where we see abundance, and uh, what is the thing that we're most looking forward to at that at that time. Um, when that's done, we kind of go our separate ways so she can get ready. I go out and uh, I usually sit in the hot tub, or if I happen to be uh, down island, uh, I take a swim in the ocean. Uh, when I'm done with that, I usually do about 10 to 15 minutes of uh, meditation. And uh, then I get a situational sort of briefing, uh, which is uh, delivered by a few apps on my iPad. 
So I look at things like uh, what are the, the news, what's happened in the last 24 hours, uh, and I get an aggregated view of this via TigerTrack. Um, what, what are the topics that, are, that my networks are talking about? Uh, what sort of activity is, has the Hitme seen to the Honeypoint Internet Threat Monitoring Environment? What are the patterns that it's seen in the last 24 hours? Uh, what's the, you know, what are the stock markets doing? Uh, so here, again, this isn't information security focus. What I'm, what I'm doing is getting primed for my customers. So what are they likely to be concerned about? What, you know, what things are, is the CEO that I'm going to have a call with at two o'clock, what's he like, he or she likely to be concerned about? Um, it's that kind of stuff. Uh, so now I get ready to go to work. Uh, so I, I usually, my day starts for MSI at about 10 o'clock. And notice that before this, I still have, I haven't checked email, right? Um, so the first thing that I usually do is try to knock out the thing that I have to absolutely get done that day. Um, the must do, if you, if you will. Um, and if I have time, then I do the should do things, the things that will make the other stuff easy. Uh, and then I, then I check email and kind of get my day started. So that's in an ideal day. Now, obviously, uh, sometimes you get up and, uh, you, you know, the power's off or a squirrel chewed your line or you wake up and there's no hot water and you got to figure out why. Sure, we all have those days. But on a, on a general day, uh, that's, that's how I try to go. Uh, I work till about one o'clock. One o'clock uh, is usually when I have my first meal of the day. Uh, I use a compressed eating window, so I generally only eat food between 1 p.m. and 8 p.m. And um, I take in all my calories at that time, and at, at uh, roughly 8 o'clock, I'm done eating for the, for the day. Um, about 8 o'clock as well, uh, that's when we'll sort of settle in. Usually there's music, reading, occasionally uh, television, although not much. We, we only consume about an hour, maybe two of TV a week. Uh, and then I do something called uh, visual overwriting, uh, which is I stimulate my visual cortex by playing a game or watching something that uh, is visually changing. I do that for about 10 to 15 minutes. I find that calms my mind very well. Again. Uh, thank you to some of the research that Tim Ferriss has brought up um, and uh, some of the folks that, that have been looking at the, at the neuromechanics of that. Uh, that's something that's paid off very well in the last couple of years of my life. And uh, then I'm ready for bed. And I'm an old man, so I sleep, uh, I sleep pretty sound, and uh, I'm back at it the next morning when I, wake, when I make my bed. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time – so far looking back at your career, I kind of want to talk about what you see going forward. Um, what's next that you want to accomplish in the next five to 10 years? Man, next is to get you to do more on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot. You, you do some on Twitter, yeah. but uh, I, think it's, uh, I think it's driving uh, the folks that I am mentoring today uh, to a wider vision. Uh, I think that's a, that's a next kind of thing is, is sort of taking some of the non-technology uh, focused skills that I've developed and processes and research that I've done and helping folks uh, the next round of, of mentees take that and grow it in non-technical form. 
Um, I don't know. I, I'm a, I fancy myself to be a maker uh, in addition to a hacker. So I've probably got a few products left in me, a few tricks left up my sleeve. Uh, I'd like to bring in a couple more products to market. I'm, I've got uh, about a half dozen that we've, you know, as you know, we've been prototyping. And you like uh, super secret squirrel security ninjas out there. I'm not going to tell you what they are yet, but you stay tuned to Twitter because when they come <laughs> – when they come out, you'll be the first to know. As everybody knows, I, I tell all my friends on Twitter stuff before long before it becomes public. But uh, we got a few tricks up our sleeve, and um, I'm really enthralled with uh, Tiger Tracks right now. We've done some amazing stuff with uh, analytics and, and building out machine learning models. Uh, I really think there's going to be some stuff coming up soon where that's going to that's going to really be a gosh. I'm going to use the p word. Uh, a paradigm shift in the way we do information security and risk assessment. Uh, machine learning has some promises in it that uh, I think will make big changes just applying some of the basics to new problem sets, new new data flows. So that's, if you ask me, that's what I hope we're doing. Uh, whatever it is, I hope we continue to have fun doing it. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, uh, here at MSI, uh, fun is a big part of it. Uh, we don't we don't like to get bored. So I think we'd uh, whatever you and I and Roadman seventy three seventy three and Papa Hoppa and uh, Haas and all those guys, whatever we come up with, I hope I hope that uh, those things keep us entertained. Absolutely, definitely makes the day shorter. <laughs> you ever you ever go home and feel like, gosh, I just didn't have anything to do today? Out of <laughs> no, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so we've talked about where you want to go in your career, but to get to this point, what would you say was the biggest obstacle you had to overcome? Boy, the biggest obstacle I had to overcome in my career was me. Um, me. It, it, it truly was. Uh, it was hubris. Uh, it was the hubris of youth. Uh, it was narrow of vision. Um, and... It was being able to uh, step outside of solving a security problem or a business problem or or whatever to uh, establish my self worth. Um, and so meditation helped a lot with that. Uh, so did living outside of the U.S. and uh, to a certain extent, so did mind. That, that sort of simplicity of mindfulness. Um, but uh, that was definitely the, the biggest thing I, I had to overcome was just sort of my own um, arrogance and predisposition to the idea that, um, that I could solve it. Um, and I will tell you that uh, it created new drive once I, once I sort of uh, separated myself from it. And it gave me renewed focus in my 40s that uh, are driving me forward. Um, you know, a lot of people talk to me that aren't in the information security industry and just ask themselves what they need to do to secure their own personal data and their own personal systems that don't necessarily have the time or even the knowledge to do it easily themselves. And if you could give one piece of advice to the average consumer, what would it be? <laughs> you may not like this advice. The first, the first thing I would say to a consumer 
is get used to the idea that your data is already out there um, because the idea that somehow uh, you're going to be able to protect your personal information and that you're going to have like some sort of privacy in the future in terms of the way we think about privacy today or that we thought about it 10 years ago is an absolute set of nonsense. Um, what you as a consumer will have is a set of risk mitigations and risk minimizations that make it plausible for you to live in the modern world. Um, but uh, the idea that like you're somehow going to protect your stuff or protect your, your privacy, uh, those days are long gone. Um, and, and for those of you who are crypto hounds right now, pounding on the keyboard or like, uh, you know, claiming how crypto can solve it, crypto can't solve the problem. Um, crypto is a piece of part of that mitigation and minimization strategy that if crypto could have solved it, we would have solved it in the 70s. Um, and if, if you don't believe me, uh, take a look at uh, some of the writings of Bruce Schneier and the way he feels about uh, how much of the problem crypto can solve. Um, beyond that, uh, I think people are going to have to invest in basic controls. Um, you, ha you, you have to have, you know, firewalls, you've got to have uh, detection tools, you have to know what to do when something bad happens. You have to have a mechanism for, uh, you know, for responding to that. And that, sorry about all those bells and whistles, uh, but that's true whether that's for a business or for home. Um, and I think there's there's just a bit of consumer education that needs to happen here um, where we teach consumers to make decisions based on risk. If you go back to our last podcast, we talked about privacy in the modern world. We talked about making risk decisions. Uh, for example, you said, you know, hey, you could sign up for this service that helped you clean out your email box, but it read every email and performed analytics on every email. Well, that's a risk, and, and consumers are going to have to make it a, a, a risk decision on something like that and decide whether they're willing to suffer that loss of privacy and the potential exposure that anybody who hacks that site may get access to their email versus the discomfort of having a bazillion emails and, and spam and all that stuff, right? Um, and they're going to have to make that decision in the modern world. The problem is, is that they're going to have to make that decision every single day all the time because that that sort of data interchange that sort of technology is so ubiquitous now that it's a part of of our everyday life um in the old days we you used to talk about the internet and we would build a perimeter right and and you would try to secure the internet and then came wireless technologies and we all of the security community was abuzz with the erosion of the perimeter, right? And then mobile devices, your data is everywhere. Okay, well now I have a personal area network, right? So I went from a WAN to a LAN to a PAN, right? I'm wearing a watch, I have a phone in my pocket, I have an iPad, I have a laptop. All those things are interconnected and they're talking via Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and in some cases infrared everything else all around my body all the time so there's data flowing all the time there's communication flowing all the time now 
I made a conscious choice to do that, but the outcome of that is some loss of privacy, right? Um, and so the question that we have to decide is, are the conveniences that these things provide worth the potential loss of privacy and a risk of loss of our data? Definitely understandable. Um, if you were to walk into a corporation today and have the same type of mindset where you just need to give them one piece of advice as a company to try to protect their customers' data or their intellectual property, what would that piece of advice be? Boy, uh, I still think that the, the, the single largest control that they can get value from is looking at data leaving the network. So if you've got uh, a, a single point where, or multiple points even, where data is flowing out to the internet, um, if you're not paying attention to that, we used to call that egress control, if you're not paying attention to what's leaving the network, um, then you're, you're broken. Um, and so getting egress right to me is by far the number one thing that you could do today because from that you get an idea of what's being stolen you get an idea of what's what's inside your environment that is talking outbound you might see command and control you might see passive exfiltration if nothing else if you were to just harden that space you make it harder for an attacker to maintain control and exfiltrate data even even if they successfully penetrate the network. So I think that's my number one advice. But most organizations, the, the, the second thing I would say is step back away from trying to solve every technical fire and, and put out every little smoldering hot spot and start to look at the threat. So what do bad guys do? How do they do it? Why are they targeting you? What do you have that's of value? And try to make some more strategic decisions about things in relationship to the threat than whatever else that you're doing to patch this and put out this fire. Um, we are way too stuck in tactics today and we need to back up off of that, look at strategy and apply tactics in a rational sense. But most organizations aren't doing that. They're just tactically putting out the fire. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there's still budget constraints despite how large the problem seems to be. Yeah, and I think to some extent that's because of that, right? So mm -hmm. they're expending a ton of resources to put out every fire or trying to put out every fire without really stepping back and saying, okay, what really matters? How do I protect what really matters? Because then I can spend the limited amount of funds I have in a way that's rational to what matters, A, and B, the threat, right? So um, I, I think that, is, that would be a game changer. Mm -hmm. And it has been a game changer for clients where we've been able to do that. There's been a lot, I think really a hot topic with information security lately has been information sharing. Out of the two conferences I've attended in the last couple of weeks, that has been heavily debated. And if companies were sharing not only just IOCs, but how attackers got in, do you think that would help organizations? And do you think that's where eventually we're going to shift? <laughs> um, information sharing is interesting because so many organizations do a crappy job of detection. Mm -hmm. So um, what they would share, I would think, would be largely broken anyway. 
Um, if we fix detection and we start to fix response capability and we move beyond IOCs as the currency of sharing, so that is in indicators of compromise, you know, the, the MD5 hashes of malware, the, um, the, you know, command and control IPs and URLs, those are indicators of compromise. If we can move beyond that, right, to really tactic, technique, procedure, this band of attackers likes to attack in this way. They focus on this set of industries. Here are some of the ways that they, they operate. Um, and here's how you uh, might look at those potential operations in your environment. So matching again, what you have that matters against what the threat's actually doing. Um, I think if you could do that and, and combine that and share those TTPs to a layer that uh, folks could make strategic decisions, so the tactical IOC-based deployments, they're gonna see significant more rewards from information sharing. But the idea that somehow sharing a bunch of IOCs is gonna change the tide, to me doesn't make any sense because uh, attackers can shift IPs and change URLs significantly cheaper and more rapidly than we can keep up with them. So I think there's a definitely, there's definitely a declining value for IOC-based exchanges. Um, this next question kind of goes along those same lines. Out of all the crime research that I've done over the last year and a half, the problem still seems to be that our weakest link in a network is the human. And social engineering is still just so easy for attackers to get the information they need to begin to steal data or whatever they need. How do we stop that and how do we make it get better? Well, I think the interesting thing there is that as soon as you and uh, Redman7373 left Louisville, the police said the crime rate dropped by like 30%. So uh, I think that, that could be a part of it. Maybe we just keep you too busy and the crime rate goes down. Uh, but I think all, all in, in all seriousness, um, I don't think we can stem the tide. Um, I don't think there's anything on the horizon immediately that will change the momentum of, of it. Attackers are clearly ahead. Attackers clearly have the battlefield advantage, and they are going to continue to do that for quite some time. Over the horizon, or just on the horizon. The only thing that I see right now from my, my standpoint that could be potentially game-changing is machine learning, artificial intelligence, analytics, adaptive defenses based on large-scale data patterns and data analytics. Um, those things that are faster than humans could lead to a dynamic change, at least temporarily, maybe for quite some time in the scope of it. Maybe it could turn the tide temporarily. The problem with it is it won't take that data set and that capability long to become so ubiquitous that it becomes misused. And attackers can invest in machine learning too. So um, I, think, I think that's an interesting thing that's coming. In the, in the long-term horizon, there's a chance that it, it could make a significant difference. What I'm not convinced is how long that difference will last or how large 
the impact will be. Um, I think we're actually getting somewhat short on time here. We are. It's been almost 45 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess let me uh, ask one final question here. Um, I know a lot of people who listen to the podcast are also readers. And if you could recommend at least just two, three books for people who are more interested in learning about information security. Man, that's awesome. Uh, the, the first book I would tell you to check out is The 4-Hour Workweek. So um, it's not that you're going to go become a security person for four hours. It's not that you're going to start a muse business or whatever. The book is really about meta-learning, and it's about applying um, meta-learning and process optimization to your job. You literally will be able to uh, to significantly enhance your output and effectiveness as an information security person uh, by learning some of those lessons. Second book I would tell you to take a look at is a uh, uh, is a book called Outliers, and that's a Malcolm Gladwell book, um, and it talks about uh, basically how people excel, what what um, allows people to become game changers, and uh, some of the attributes associated with game changing kind of behaviors. If there's one thing information security needs, it's more game changing. We need people to engage in the problem and start to think holistically and really bend the rules of how things work today in order to change the game. The, the third book I would tell you to really take a look at is a book called Anti-Fragile. And it's a very complex read. Um, but for those of you who are interested in risk assessment, um, this book uh, talks about risk and different approaches to measuring risk and modern approaches to sort of risk tolerance and risk posture. And uh, it's a fascinating read. Um, it is not a lighthearted read in any way, but it is a uh, fascinating look at the world around us through an unusual lens. And I think that's, that's it. And then if you want to read uh, a little bit more in depth, everybody should, once a quarter, Every security person should read a book that is by far outside of information security, um, whether that's a documentary like uh, The Machete Season um, or maybe a, uh, maybe a biography like The Snowball about Warren Buffett um, or you know Steve Jobs or, or something like that, but something that is completely unrelated to information security because the lessons of those folks who are leaders, who are, who are outstanding athletes, or who are really good in their field, you can learn from them the patterns and attributes that you can turn around and apply to information security or information technology and excel. And uh, I, think, I think that's a very worthwhile thing. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that'd be helpful for them to see what works regardless of the industry and all those skills transfer regardless of what they are. Yeah, I mean, one of the best books I ever read that helped me get my head around crime was Freakonomics. Um, and it really helped me understand so much deeper and at a more nuanced level the way that crime worked. It gave me some ideas to dig into with Operation Aikido that were really revealing. What came out of them were really 
so Adam Luck, thank you so much. Uh, super secret uh, security squirrels. I hope that uh, this was worthwhile putting me in the hot seat, and I uh, hope you got something out of it. Let me know what you think on Twitter. I'm uh, at LB Houston. That's L-B-H-U-S-T-O-N. But I was interviewed today by the effervescent and always fantastic at Adam J. Luck. How do they spell that? A-D-A-M, the letter J, L-E-U-C-K. All right, so there you go. We call him Lucky Pony around here. If you see him at a conference, give him a pat on the back and uh, give him a big Lucky Pony hug. He always loves that. All right, guys. Uh, that said, it's a beautiful sunny day. We're going to go out, have a slushy, and probably enjoy some sunshine. Uh, we hope you're doing the same. See you soon. Hey there, security peeps. This is Brent Houston from Microsoft Inc. and stateofsecurity.com. I wanted to say thank you very much for spending time with us and thanks for listening to this month's episode. If you'd like to learn more about Microsoft Inc., you can do so on the web. We are at microsolved.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-S-O-L-V-E-D.com or stateofsecurity.com if you'd like to check out our blog. You can also reach out anytime and talk to me on Twitter. I'm at L-B-H-U-S-T-O-N and I would love to hear from you. Microsoft is, of course, the sponsor of this podcast, and uh, they have a wide variety of security services from pen testing to application security to policy and process consulting, risk assessment, and a bunch of deeply technical uh, work all the way down to the circuit level of testing devices. So over 20 years experience, if you're interested in security services, please check us out and uh, we'd love to talk to you. Again, that's microsolved.com, M-I-C-R-O-S-O-L-V-E-D. Until next time, thanks for checking us out on the stateofsecurity.com podcast. And as always, stay safe out there.